Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Money Talk. I'm Neil Chrysell and Diane Duvernay are your hosts every week right here on AM 1290, FM 96.9 and streaming at AM 1290 KZSB. We reported, we we're repeated at 11 and on Saturdays at 6. We're brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending, whose highly trained and experienced team takes great pride in helping people with home financing, offering competitive rates and a wide array of loan programs. American Riviera Bank, smart banking for smart people in Santa Barbara at Figueroa and Anacapa Streets and at Montecito's Upper Village. And Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm in Santa Barbara, providing its clients with the personal care and attention of a small independent firm coupled with the vast resources of a major financial institution. Hi, Neil. Has, what's, hasn't this been a great weekend of rain? It's been so fun to be out and about in it. Well, it's easy for you to say because you don't have three dogs. I know, but I had a kid that played soccer in the rain that I had to stand there, you know, in the cold yeah. umbrella. I know, but at it, least... It, the, it's my East Coast roots coming out, enjoying the rain, right? Well, at least your kids go out voluntarily. It's very difficult to herd three dogs out into the rain. <laughs> so. Um, uh, we have a whole bunch of articles today. Um, the first article is about um, Kathy Wood, who is the founder of ARK Innovation. Now, we've had a number of articles about her over the last couple of years. And um, if everyone remembers, she is the uh, greatest proponent of uh, high growth tech stocks. And her fund was a darling of investors up until a year ago when the uh, tech boom collapsed and uh, her her fund is basically, well, for the so far this year, it's down 63% uh, with, the, with the market uh, up 10%. Uh, so uh, basically it's been a real disaster for her. And the article focuses on the fact that for the first six months of this year, even though the uh, performance was abysmal, people kept putting money into the fund, hoping that she would be right. Uh, but now, finally, it seems that money is beginning to flow out. And um, what was what's so interesting is she's doubling down. Her her quote in the article is two two quotes in the article are really interesting. She said that. Um, she believes the price of Bitcoin, which is now about sixteen, seventeen thousand uh, dollars, will be one million dollars per coin uh, in two thousand thirty. That's a six six thousand percent increase, which is, you know, I think just uh, I can't even comment That's on that. That's astounding, as she said that. And the other thing she's saying is Zoom, which is Ark's largest holding. Um, which currently is selling for $72. She's saying that the worst case is it will be $700. The best case in, in uh, three years it will be $1,500. And uh, I just don't understand the, those numbers. And uh, her performance certainly is, um, is representative of somebody who, uh, you know, is not going to change her tune. And, um, well, and, and what I think what's remarkable about this is really sh her investors have been very loyal and stayed with her for a long time. Most of the time when you have, you know, month over month downward pressure beyond that of the of the broad based markets, you get a lot of people jumping off um, or I should rather say out of various investments, especially one as tech heavy as as the ARC fund is. And so, you know, her her investors are quite loyal. And I do think that that's um, remarkable, especially given those quotes, which seem somewhat outlandish as we sit here today with today's numbers. Well, you know, one of the things about being a good investor is you always have to be willing to say you're wrong. And if you take, you know, a, a faith-based evangelistic view towards your belief system in the stock market, it, it never really works out well. Um, the next article we have is uh, something we've talked about every year, but it's worth talking about this time of the year, and that's the uh, reality that if you hold a mutual fund as opposed to an ETF, uh, you could be stuck with phantom capital gains. And the reason for that is that uh, mutual funds 
uh, have to send their investors uh, who are uh, owners as of a certain date, usually like December 23rd, 24th, whatever the date is, uh, which is in their prospectus, uh, they need to report that uh, on a 1099 as a capital gain to the holder at that moment. Now, what's happened this year is because of the high redemptions, uh, meaning people have wanted to get their money out, mutual funds have sold uh, a lot of positions to raise cash to pay out people over the last 11 months. And they have sold many stocks that have had large uh, capital gains from the time they may have bought the stock 15 years ago. So the paradox here is you may have bought a mutual fund three months ago, and if you don't uh, watch out when the date the 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 date of uh, a 1099 is effective, you will be ending up paying capital gains tax on uh, someone else's gain. And you want to know what in funds such as the ARC fund, if we just merge the, the last two articles together, yep. you could have a loss of 68% year to date, and then also have that fund spin off capital gains because maybe she bought Zoom at, you know, $25. So it was, it's still in the money for the fund. Exactly. If you just bought this mutual fund, say in January, and you've just lost money, you will be distributed a capital gain for that. And you know, consequently be liable for the taxes due. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the double whammy of that. Um, the next article is, uh, which was in uh, 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 the uh, journal uh, yesterday, is that it begins by saying Americans are missing out on billions of dollars in interest by keeping their savings in the big uh, U.S. Uh, commercial banks. And um the numbers are really astounding. For the, the five biggest banks, Bank of America, Citicorp, et cetera, paid an average of 0.4% in interest on consumer deposits. Um, the five highest yielding savings accounts today are yielding 2.14%. Uh, and that gap, given the amount of money that is held by banks, means that in, that depositors are losing $42 billion in interest they could get. And um, the reasons the article goes on to say that people uh, are not willing to switch is uh, varied from uh, the uh, laziness. Uh, That's probably uh, the number one, honestly. Inertia, the fact that people... Um, and this is a real, there's a quote in here. It's really surprising. This, 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 some people say that they like their, their honors tier status when they at Bank of America and don't want to jeopardize it by taking their money out. But anyway, the, uh, there's a bat, there's a backup article that, that appeared in today's paper that said that, um, banks now, um, are, uh, because, uh, it, because interest rates are uh, are, are are going up, um, and uh, th they have to mark to market uh, some of their bond holdings, they need more uh, income and more cash uh, to be able to be rated what they want to be rated, and so uh, it looks like banks are going to have to start considering raising the interest they pay their depositors because for the first time in a long time, they're no longer cash rich. So interestingly, people's uh, not lack of willingness to switch may not matter for too much longer because it looks like, based on today's article, that because of the regulatory issues of having mark-to-market bonds that have gone down in value because interest rates have gone up, uh, people may in fact end up being uh, benefiting from higher rates the banks will be forced to charge to attract money. Well, what I think is interesting is, you know, back in the early 2000s, you had these major institutions putting marketing done. So, you know, we might get ourselves back into that spot where money, where money market rates start to go up because these institutions are putting their marketing dollars to attract new 
new funds to the bank. Um, that really would be interesting to get a, get us back into that spot of the early two, 2000s. Uh, you're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and streaming on FM 96.9, and we'll be right back. For prospective home buyers, one of the most important steps of the loan process is getting clear and honest information from someone who will speak plainly and truthfully about loan programs and options. I'm Kelly Marsh, Vice President, California, of Cornerstone Home Lending, where our highly skilled and experienced team takes great pride in helping clients obtain home financing with honest, knowledgeable, fast, friendly, and efficient service. As a Santa Barbara native who has spent the past 20 years in the mortgage industry and has closed over 4,000 loans, I'd appreciate the opportunity to earn your business and invite you to visit the Kelly Marsh team.com or call my office at 805-563-1100 to learn more about how Cornerstone Home Lending can help you determine the best way to manage mortgage debt to achieve a more stable financial future. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. California Residential Mortgage Lending Act license number 41DB072220. California Financial Lending Law license number 60DB072528. Loan originator NMLS number 245822. Not a commitment to loan. Equal housing opportunity. It's a fact. Successful wealth management is built on strategies that focus on the big picture, take a long-term view, and establish deep and valued relationships. Hello, I'm Diane Duva, founding partner at Arlington Financial Advisors, Santa Barbara's trusted family guide, empowering you to make more informed and confident decisions. At Arlington Financial Advisors, we bring order and balance to your financial life by monitoring and managing risk so you can focus on your work, family, and enjoying the moment. We are a fully independent firm offering strategic financial planning, estate and tax planning, and private money management. Our plans and portfolios are handcrafted using a rigorous and disciplined approach, supported by a consistent yet highly personalized client experience. Our clients look to Arlington Financial Advisors as a home away from home, a comfortable place to protect what they've accomplished while they prepare for what comes next. Please visit ArlingtonFinancialAdvisors.com or call me, Diane Duva, at 805-699-7300. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending since 1988, a mortgage banker and direct lender that believes in providing in-depth loan consulting to its customers in a personalized and honest manner. And Diane, and we, we never got to introduce, we had to introduce our guest. Oh, you're right. We haven't. We are thrilled to have with us Kathy Rogers. She is a board member and I believe the secretary of channel keepers here in Santa Barbara and also a retired securities trader. Kathy, thanks so much for being with us today. My pleasure. And if anyone would like to reach out with any questions, our phone number is 805-564-1290, or you could email us at moneytalk1290 at gmail.com. So Kathy, tell us, how, tell us, how did you get to Santa Barbara? So let's see, um, after living in New York City for about 27 years, um, we decided it, that was enough time in New York and we kind of spun the globe and looked around for a great place to live. Um, actually narrowed it down to Santa Barbara versus La Jolla and auditioned both for about three to four days. And um, we won, yay! Yes, on the last day we actually looked at houses. It was it was pretty quick. quick. Well, you know, I have to ask Kathy, because being on a Zoom call with two people that spent that much time um, in New York, how come you don't sound like you're from New York? <laughs> do you mean, why do I not have what's, what people call a New York accent? Or do you mean, why do I not, um, why don't I, why don't I have the New York city, uh, rushed intense inflection, which are you asking? <laughs> both actually, because Neil, my co-host here yes. embodies both of those items. <laughs> I haven't noticed a New York accent with Neil, but, um, Oh, thank you. Ah, you haven't? That's funny. Well, We've I, been doing I, this for about five years, and oh. he just has now been able to say my last name without an ER at the end. That's <laughs> hilarious. Um, yeah, there's that's that's LinkedIn. I guess I'm used to the very extreme New York accents. Um, so I grew up in the Bay Area, first of all. So I didn't move to New York until after college and grad school. So that's one reason. Um, and uh, and and the other part, I, I actually am kind of still like a New Yorker. 
uh, I sort of act like a New Yorker and people in California think I'm a New Yorker and people in New York think I'm a Californian. So <laughs> you're like really... a, a woman without a home. Exactly. It's hard to fit in either place completely. <laughs> so given your diverse history, um, let's start with, you know, your undergraduate college degree. You went to Stanford and you mm -hmm. had an, you received an engineering degree. What made you want to go into engineering? And obviously you were a very driven person to get into and actually um, succeed at Stanford. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, so, you know, I, I was one of those kids who always liked math and science. So, and it's, you know, I'd heard, well, if you like math and science, you're supposed to be an engineer, right? So I sort of had adopted that. Um, I liked chemistry. So first I thought I was gonna be a chemical engineer. And then uh, basically right when I got to college, I realized that most chemical engineers end up working for oil companies. That was not something I wanted to do. So I looked around and found a different kind of engineering, which was called industrial engineering, which was kind of interesting. It had some different interesting components, finance and production, and also some organizational behavior stuff, which was sort of what we call the fuzzy, the fuzzy realm kind of. Um, but yeah, that was that was sort of how I think I ended up there. And so when going into the engineering program at Stanford, I, I've got to imagine that it was uh, heavily male dominated. What made you want to pursue that field? And was that something normal for you in terms of your um, adaption or, you know, your your love of both math and science? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I think um, I think I was used to being in fields uh, or you know, excelling in areas where typically men excelled. So like, you know, in math class and science class and the, you know, the math and science awards and all those things. Um, I was kind of used to it. So it wasn't, it wasn't really something I thought about or noticed. I did, I guess I did realize at one point um, when you looked at all of the engineering programs, how lopsided it was when I was there. But um, yeah, it didn't really phase me. I mean, as uh, you know, Neil pointed out earlier that I that I then you know became a securities trader and and later a journalist, um, and the, they were all pretty male dominated fields. Um, and I was thinking about it, and because he asked me a good question, and I think uh, I think it probably made me even more outspoken than I already was um, in order to sort of be heard. If that that will probably make sense to you, I assume, but. Um, you know, it was, you know, the kind of thing where you're, you say, you say something, you, you, right, you're in a meeting, you say something sort of short and succinctly, nobody says anything. And then somebody else later says the same thing, but in a longer, more drawn out way. And then everybody, you know, launches on. So, so that's a brilliant idea. And then you're kind of like, mm -hmm, okay, okay. Not sure what happened there, but so, you know, that's sort of one of the effects, but I think it, I think it made me more, instead of discouraging me, I think it made me more willing to speak up and say, you know, this is, you know, I'm here, I count too, my, I, I have just as much to say. It's interesting that you bring up that example because there's an article I didn't choose to use at the beginning of the show, which uh, was in the Wall Street Journal this weekend about uh, whether or not uh, you can uh, be successful if you're not forceful, and if that's true, uh, how do women uh, uh, get ahead without acting like a man? That was what the article was about, and that means you know even today there is a difference in how people behave, and that behavior, uh, which sometimes is uh, gender specific, uh, can actually be uh, hurt. Can actually hurt someone if they're not the kind of person that just is going to push themselves into a discussion. Right. Yeah. I mean, I happen to think that the path for female success is, is far narrower or the paths are far narrower than they are for men. Mm -hmm. um, for, you know, that's, that's my opinion. I mean, there's, why do we call like, you know, why do we call women feisty, spunky? She's a firecracker. Right. And, and we don't use those words for men, right? What is that? Why do we not use those words for men? Because, because it's not unusual for them to be that way, right? It doesn't stand out. So, um, yeah, my opinion is it's uh, it's it's easier said than done to be kind of soft and nurturing and charismatic and um, 
compassionate and also sort of be, you know, a strong leader, especially when you have a lot of traditional men working with you. If you're female, I think if you're male, it's, it's a lot easier. Agreed. It, it's, a, it's a lot more acceptable to be outspoken and then you're, you know, and not being, not being labeled as, you know, being difficult or aggressive or whatever term of, of disparaging comment that they want to make a, a, for women. So along on that same line, how did you make that leap from engineering to securities trader? Even as an industrial engineer, it seems like it's it's a um, a pivot in your in your career path. It was a little bit. I, I guess I realized that while I liked studying engineering, a lot of sort of work and careers in engineering are um, a, a little bit repetitive. Let's say. Um, and I'm kind of, a, I'm, I guess I'm a little bit of an adventure seeker. I get, you know, I have kind of a short attention span and I like things that are, that are changing often or, you know, are, are different every day and trading was like that, but. You, you're an adrenaline junkie. I see. <laughs> a, little bit, a little bit. So, um, but like they, people, people in my major were recruited to do this sort of, sort of be this liaison between like. Um, the trading floor and the back office, sort of there was a whole um, systems kind of liaison that was new and they were recruiting people for that. Uh, but then I had actually worked uh, in New York in finance the summer before and I realized that, you know, sales and trading was sort of where I belonged. And anyway, I sort of used that sort of series of interviews and sort of leapfrogged into directly into sales and trading and didn't end up didn't end up taking a job in in that sort of liaison role and just wait, went straight into sales and trading. Um, and there's not the funny thing is, yeah, it's not an, it doesn't seem like a natural path, but they were hiring a lot of engineers or people or math majors because of all the analysis involved in like derivatives analysis. It was pretty complicated. Um, so it was there isn't really a major that that, you know, is a natural fit for for traders, I would say. Um, so it was sort of as good as anything. Uh, and you just sort of had to be confident, I think. To get You're that. listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9, and we'll be right back. When a bank is owned by the community and invests in the community, it answers to a different call. It's personal. It's driven by your needs, not ours. Welcome to American Riviera Bank, based right here in Santa Barbara with branches in Montecito and Goleta. Our customers know us for personal service, every day, every way. You can bank on us. Bank on us. Bank on us! American Riviera Bank. Bank on better. Just in time for the holidays, it's the ASAP Cat and Kitten Adoption Event and Yard Sale. It's your chance to take home a friendly, furry little critter for the holidays. We're especially looking for both adopters and fosters. You can either foster a cat or kitten to give them a break from the shelter, or you can adopt a cat or kitten and give them their forever home. The ASAP Cat and Kitten Adoption Event and Yard Sale is happening Saturday, December 17th from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. at 5473 Overpass Road in Goleta. Plus, while you're there, check out their yard sale featuring incredible holiday gift ideas, beautiful Christmas decorations, antiques, collectibles, and so much more. It's the ASAP Cat and Kitten Adoption Event and Yard Sale, Saturday, December 17th from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. at the Animal Shelter Assistance Program, 5473 Overpass Road in Goleta. Go to ASAPCATS.org or call 805-683-3368. In movies, when someone at a party jumps into a pool fully dressed, everyone cheers them on and jumps in too. Just so you know, in real life parties, nobody jumps in after you. You just look stupid. Come on, jump in. Come on. Most party fouls are pretty dumb, but if you decide to drink and drive underage, you could lose your license and your freedom. Learn more at ultimatepartyfoul.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance 
for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. And we can be reached at 805-564-1290. And if you're just joining us, we have the pleasure of having Kathy Rogers with us, who is a retired security trainer, an engineer, and a board member at Channel Keepers. And currently, she's actually an editor and, and writer. So, Kathy, share with us, before the break, we were talking about you know, your role in the as a securities trader. So walk us through what a day in the life is of a securities trader. Okay, so just to be clear, I, this was a long time ago. So I did retire in the 90s. Um, but it's, um, it's, it's very intense. Um, and basically, you, you are representing a bank, and you have their money, and you have to buy and sell securities that you, whatever your security is, in my case, it was mostly two-year notes, two-year treasury notes, you have to decide what price you're going to buy from a customer. You're the market maker and what price you're going to sell at. So that so you have to sort of have an idea which way the market's going, so what you can unload in the market so that you don't lose money and hopefully make money for the bank. Um, so it's super intense because, you know, you could have these big customers come in and demand to sell, demand that you sell them, you know, 100 million face value two-year note treasuries. And, you know, if you price it wrong, you're going to be underwater trying to buy them back. So things like that. It's it's so, yeah, it's really intense. You can make or lose a lot of money for the bank in one day. And, um, you know, it's a it's a horrible feeling when you're losing money. It's just it feels like someone reached inside and like turned your stomach upside down. Um, I remember like the first time I lost a lot of money, I could not I sort of couldn't eat for the rest of that day. It was it was a horrible day. But then when you're, you know. When you do well, you're you know making a lot of money for the bank and you're happy and you're sort of in sync with the market. It's very intuitive. It's kind of hard to explain. It's not at all a linear analytic um, process. You really have to be sort of in tune with the emotions of the participants of the market just by sort of watching and feeling it. It's kind of hard to explain. But um, it made me a lot more intuitive doing that job because you have to be intuitive while you're doing that. I had a friend. I, I had a friend that managed a, a bond trading firm in the '80s, and you couldn't you couldn't get away with this today. But he interviewed and uh, potential traders. The last question he asked is, "Do you use the facilities during the trading day?" And if they said yes, he wouldn't hire them. He his rule was: you sit down at the desk at 8 a.m. and you can stand up at three o'clock or four o'clock, whatever it was, the, you, the, he didn't want people leaving the desk. That's how intense and crazy that, that job could be. Yeah, well, we had to, they bought us lunch so that we would eat lunch at our desk. So we, didn't, <laughs> we couldn't, I mean, you could leave if it was calm and there wasn't much going on, but yeah, you can, it's, it's I mean, if you're a good trader, you wouldn't really want to leave anyway because you're going to miss out and you might, you know, might lose money. So it's, you know, that's just sort of how it is, yeah. So what made you want to retire? I think I know the answer, but. <laughs> oh, from trading, you mean? Yeah. So I then went, I then went on to journalism. So I actually went back to Columbia grad school, got a master's in journalism from Columbia. And um, my idea was to make the, the sort of nascent television version of financial journalism better than it was at that point, because it wasn't very good. There was a lot of good print journalism on financial markets, but the TV was just sort of beginning and it was, there was lots of errors and, um, you know, it just wasn't great. So my idea was to help make it better. And I didn't, I was just sort of done trading. The markets had changed. Um, and it was sort of time for me to do something else. It wasn't, I don't know. It's just, I'm, I was sort of ready to, I didn't really want that to be my whole life. And I didn't really want to manage a trading floor either. You know, it's not, it's not the same thing as kind of trading. I don't know if that makes sense. Right. So the next step in your career path would have been to manage a desk as opposed to be the trader. Yeah, I think, I mean, I guess, but then again, there's a lot of traders who don't like doing that. So they just want to trade or they, and they go to start a hedge fund, whatever. Right. So I didn't, you know, I didn't want to do that either. So. And so, so you went back to, or you went back to school, you went to Columbia, got your master's in journalism. And so did did you envision kind of where financial news on television is today? Did you envision yourself like an anchor as somebody providing that information to people or, or what was your dream back when you, when you decided to make that um, career shift? Right. Yeah. I wanted to do reporting in some manner. Um, and I did work at CNBC actually while I was in school. And then also um, fortune magazine business report on New York one. 
um, mostly as a writer and sort of assistant pro producer kind of jobs, but that was sort of while I was in school. Um, it was really interesting working for CNBC because I did it right when I started journalism school and CNBC, it has all, it had all the famous personalities that are there now. Um, and it was very fun. It was a fun place to work, but uh, I knew when I got there, I knew less about television and television production than anyone in the building, you know, including the janitors. And I knew, but I knew more about trading and markets than probably anyone in the building because none of them had traded. So it was a very odd combination, you know? So um, I would be given these sort of complicated stories to write, um, you know, and we would negotiate how much time I had to explain it, uh, you know, put it in sort of real person vernacular. Um, so it was well, that really as a gift, if you think about it, because, you know, most of the trading lingo most slave people wouldn't, wouldn't truly understand what you were even trying to say. And so that is a gift. And it, and then you were probably, you know, it's kind of interesting because if you think about it, that it probably helped your engineering that go between, you know, helping other writers understand what they're talking about and then saying to the TV, you know, the, the anchors explaining that so that they could actually say it in a, in a somewhat, um, useful way for people to be able to understand. So how long did you stay um, doing that job? Oh, I so I didn't end up working for them after after journalism school because and that was sort of my kind of the the I was a little bit naive, I guess, about the world. Um, and I saw that there wasn't actually a, there was a path to everything except being a reporter. Um, and there's no path. There was no path to being a reporter. Uh, and I, you know, this was probably one of the times where I was just sort of naive about, you know, sexual harassment and sexism and how it's used um, in the workplace. So I ended up not going back there because I didn't think I was going to end up being able to do what I wanted to do. Um, so instead, I just I just wrote articles after that. And so when you were they financial articles still? Yeah, that's how I started. It started out that way. And then I would just, um, and then I just sort of switched. Uh, when I had kids, I sort of cut back and just sort of wrote pieces about things that were interesting to me, science and environment and lots of different, to different topics. You know, when I, when I, uh, years ago, when I was getting my MBA, I had to do a final thesis and the uh, professor in charge asked everyone to come up with uh, a, a a topic. So I had as my topic, um, I submitted as, as my topic is uh, an analysis of why financial press was always wrong. And he said, no, you can't do that. And I said, why? He said, because we all know they're always wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I said, okay. And so I didn't do it. But even back way back then, uh, you know, you hire people to do that for the most part that are that are uh, personality ties, but they don't really know anything about about the market. Yeah, I remember actually my when I was working at CNBC, Neil Cavuto um, sat, sat came and sat down next to me. He said, "You know, I just I just learned what your background was, and you know, asked me a couple questions." He said, "What do you think we should do be doing differently here? Like, you know, we need more people like you." What do you, and I said, um, "Stop hire, stop interviewing economists because nobody listens to the economists. Like, you know, they're just paid to have these theories, and they don't." Nothing happens if they're wrong. Like, <laughs> interview the traders, interview the people who have a bunch of money on the line. Um, you know, as long as they're not sort of talking their position, right? Getting other people to buy their position. But in terms of like interest rate moves and things like that, I think it was, I think I, that's what, I, and he was, you know, he had this whole preaching to the converted response. He yeah. said, yeah, we've been trying to do that. But those people don't really want to be interviewed as much. You know, the economists sort of good for them to be interviewed. So it's another kind of, you know, uh, glitch in the system. You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9, and we'll be right back. Peekaboo, peekaboo, smile. Smile, buddy. Come on, smile. Oh, honey, he's still not smiling. Maybe he's not a smiler. <sighs> yeah, maybe he's just not a happy baby. Maybe he's just being a boy. You know how boys are. Or maybe he's teething. Oh, poor baby. I think his gums hurt. 
Maybe he's just tired. Or maybe his tummy hurts. He didn't eat that much. Maybe he's not ticklish. You think maybe he's scared of the dog? Maybe he'll outgrow it. Maybe it's a phase. Maybe he just doesn't like smiling. Maybe he has autism, and we can definitely do something to help. Maybe is all you need to find out more about autism. No big, joyful smiles by six months is one early sign. Learn the others at AutismSpeaks.org slash signs or see a doctor today for an autism screening. The sooner it's diagnosed, the better. And it can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. The Santa Barbara Historical Museum is proud to announce the opening of a new exhibition called Memories of Mountain Drive. Here's Ed Schertz with his memories of Mountain Drive. It was so sweet. It was so open. It- that's the kind of person you were if you weren't a, um, a mass society orientation, if you're interested in freedom, the exchange of ideas, if you're interested in drugs and booze and women and sex and all those things. It's a marvelous place because there was a great freedom there. And all of this freedom seemed to emanate, glow all around you. You're, you're encouraged to be a radical. You're encouraged to be as free as possible and to uh, explore. You can see the exhibition celebrating the Mountain Drive community at the Santa Barbara Historical Museum. For more information, go to sbhistorical.org slash events or call 805-966-1601. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by American Riviera Bank, making your life easier with cutting-edge technology, mobile deposits, free use of every ATM machine in the country, and a level of service other banks can only dream about. So, Kathy, let's talk a minute about you're very involved with the um, Santa Barbara Channel Keeper, and I believe you've held the role of treasurer. You're currently the secretary, or I might have that backwards. How did you become involved with the Channel Keeper and their important work in our community? Um, So when I moved here, I actually started investigating some of the local environmental organizations. I'd been kind of peripherally involved with some environmental groups in New York. and I wanted to find out what the organizations were here. And the more I looked into it, the more impressed I was about the number of different projects um, and activities that Channel Cable was involved in, um, especially with kind of a lean staff and a lean budget that they seemed to get a lot done. Um, so, um, I, yeah, I, I went to a couple events and then I met a couple of people and they invited me to join the board after uh, you know a year or so of involvement. and. So share with our listeners what the, what the Channel Keeper's mission is and, and um, how it speaks to you. So uh, Channel Keeper, Santa Barbara Channel Keeper, it's one of about 200 water keepers in the nonprofit water keepers independent in the U.S. Um, and it's part of the it's a it's a loose federation or loose alliance called the Water Keeper Alliance, but they don't. But we're independent and we basically protect the Santa Barbara Channel and all of its watersheds. So that's our, and, and we do that through education, advocacy, um, uh, litigation when necessary. And there's another one that I always forget. Field work. Yeah, very good. <laughs> You've got it up in front of you. Field work. Yes, which is a really important part of what we do. Thank you. Yeah, so that's that's our mission. And so we have a lot of different activities that do that. We, you know, we have, um, we have a lot of education programs where we, uh, you know, bring kids from underserved communities out on our boat and teach them about the, you know, marine, the fragile marine environment out here. We have a watershed brigade. So we're cleaning plastic and abandoned lobster traps up off off the beaches. Um, We do sort of assessments like there was a, there's a new aquaculture uh, proposed program. And so we did kind of an assessment about aquaculture and fin fish versus non-fin fish. Um, we do MPA watch because this is a marine protected area out here in our channel. And so we um, volunteer for MPA watch, which is just monitoring activities that go on in marine protected areas. Um, and then we also do this cruise ship. We've been doing this cruise ship program where we meet and greet some cruise ships um, when they arrive here at dawn and just remind them that they're in a marine protected area, remind them of the no dumping rule within 12 miles of the coastline, uh, et cetera. And you know, tell them to enjoy Santa Barbara. 
And isn't it, I, I think, you know, I think how most people in Santa Barbara know Channel Keepers, I, you all are the ones that are always telling us the contamination levels of the water and whether or not it's safe and, you know, how, through your work, how, how are you assessing the cruise ships coming to town and are they impacting our, do they have an environmental impact? Yeah. So, um, we, we don't have any, you know, kind of enforcement role at all. We're basically trying to, um, educate the community and also, um, advocate, uh, the cruise ship program kind of, it was never, there was never really a plan for how it happened. It just sort of started with a few ships in 2002, I think a couple ships and then grew and grew and grew. Um, and so people, a lot of the public actually, uh, called us and asked us about it and asked us what the, if there were pollutants and what the effect was on the Harbor. Um, so, you know, we did some research and we're basically educating people and we're, there's, a, there's public meetings going on now monthly. The city formed a subcommission within the Harbor Commission to study the effect of cruise ships and invite public comment. Um, and so there are a lot of pollutants. There's, um, you know, in addition to all the CO2, which is a lot, there's nitrous oxides, sulfuric oxides. There's the, there's permitted dumping of oily bilge water and gray water treated sewage, but then there's also dumping of this, um, toxic solid waste that builds up when you use these scrubbers because the ships burn, mostly burn this sort of dirtier fuel. Um, it's a lot. There's a lot of issues. Um, and the city doesn't seem to get that much from it. Oh, and by the way, I need to say that because I'm I'm not staff, so I'm not speaking as an official, officially on behalf of Channel Keeper. I'm just expressing my views as a board member and an activist. And so, so is the city right now talking about, you know, because the city's always weighing the economic activity that the ships and their passengers create for the city. Are they offsetting that by the pollutants and or cleanup that costs that will have to happen as this program grows? You know, because you're exactly right. In 2002, it went from like four ships to I think we have like 26 coming or scheduled to come in whatever year this is, 2022. Exactly. You know, your, you know, your data. Um, no, that's right. So the city basically created this commission to study it and there, there's a proposal to limit the cruise ships, either the number of ships, the number of passengers, you know, perhaps by the grading or the rating of the ships. Cause a lot of these companies are have D or F ratings because of, um, past violations, uh, repeated past violations. So that, so basically they're having these meetings and they're talking about, you know, the revenue stream and whether whether businesses are getting benefit from the cruise ship visits. Um, if so, how much? Because the the hotel operators and most of the restaurants say there there isn't any noticeable change. Obviously, they don't stay in hotels. And um, the the story is that they they prefer to have their free meals on the ship, and so they don't tend to eat their meals in Santa Barbara. So you know, they may, might buy a T-shirt or something, but um, the revenues that the city gets are pretty small. It's from the passenger visits. It's about, they've budgeted $500,000 for um, 2023 for revenues for a full slate of ships. Um, now, do the ships actually pay the city a docking fee? It's $10 per passenger is the fee, at whether the passenger gets off the boat or not. That's the fee. There is a some some people have said that they're that that's very low and that there are some cities that charge thirty to fifty dollars per passenger. I don't know. I haven't verified that yet. But um, anyway, so it's a very small. It's a tiny percentage, frag, fraction of a percentage of the overall city budget, and even of the small waterfront department, which has its own revenue department. It's not even. It's less than three percent of their budget, and that's before all the additional costs they have to bear of taking the ships of getting tenders, diesel tenders back and forth all day long, running those, running the extra security, hiring the ambassadors to greet them. So those are all pretty significant costs as well. So the, the ambassadors are being paid for by the city? Yeah. Oh. So um, when I first moved here, I would go to the beach and half the time I would end up with tar on my feet. Uh, that doesn't happen anymore. Are, are, are the ocean getting cleaner? Oh, is things getting better? 
So I, I would say it, the tar, okay, the tar on the beach, it varies a lot. It depends on the tide, depends on the current. It depends on a lot of things. And there was actually a lot of tar on the beach, uh, um, beaches, like about a year ago, a year, year and a half ago, people were complaining. Uh, it was like coating the bottom of their feet, whereas sometimes you just get a couple of spots. It's not, it's, it's not clear. It's not, it's never really been determined what makes there be more tar or less tar on the beaches. Um, obviously there are these natural seeps, you know, regardless of the fact that there are drills out there, that there's rigs out there. Um, and there's a lot of different theories about it, but you know, they're going to be able to actually determine from the tar balls, be able to get sort of the, what the, the equivalent of the DNA of the tar balls and be able to match it at some point in just a few years and tell whether it's coming from a leak from a rig or, or whether it's a natural seep. So well, I always heard since I've been here is that if we didn't have the rigs in the channel, that we would actually get a lot more tar from the from the natural seepage because there'd be more flow as the rigs take some of that, you know, obviously that tar and that oil out of out of the ground. Now, is that true or not? I have no idea. No. Yeah, that's a that's a theory that's well propagated by the oil industry. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9, and we'll be right back with our final segment. For prospective homebuyers, one of the most important steps of the loan process is getting clear and honest information from someone who will speak plainly and truthfully about loan programs and options. I'm Kelly Marsh, Vice President, California of Cornerstone Home Lending, where our highly skilled and experienced team takes great pride in helping clients obtain home financing with honest, knowledgeable, fast, friendly, and efficient service. As a Santa Barbara native who has spent the past 20 years in the mortgage industry and has closed over 4,000 loans, I'd appreciate the opportunity to earn your business and invite you to visit the kellymarshteam.com or call my office at 805-563-1100 to learn more about how Cornerstone Home Lending can help you determine the best way to manage mortgage debt to achieve a more stable financial future. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. California Residential Mortgage Lending Act license number 41DB072220. California Financial Lending Law license number 60DB072528. Loan originator NMLS number 245822. Not a commitment to loan. Equal housing opportunity. When a bank is owned by the community and invests in the community, it answers to a different call. It's personal. It's driven by your needs, not ours. Welcome to American Riviera Bank, based right here in Santa Barbara with branches in Montecito and Goleta. Our customers know us for personal service every day, every way. You can bank on us. Bank on us. Bank on us! American Riviera Bank. Bank on better. Cork and Fork Radio 805 is here to support, promote, encourage, and bless local businesses, charities, nonprofits, and great community people. My name is Drew Wakefield, and I encourage you to tune in to Cork and Fork Radio 805 every Friday at 12.05 p.m. with rebroadcast at 10.05 p.m., Saturdays at 6.05 a.m., or Sundays at 5.05 p.m. That's Cork and Fork Radio 805, where we support local. A better day coming. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. And so, so Kathy, you're also active um, within the community, not only at the Channel Keeper, but also at Planned Parenthood. And so we wanted to get your take on you know, what you thought about the election that we just went through and how you think the Dobbs decision played a role or didn't play a role in voter turnout and ultimately, um, you know, results. Yeah, those are, I think those are really good questions. Um, I'm not, you know, a, a, an election analyst, but I do read probably way more than I should about, about what's going on and why things, why people vote the way they do and who turns out and all that. Um, and I, I did read some preliminary analysis that um, that the the participation among the Latino population was up in this election compared to the last non-presidential election, off-year election, um, because of the prevalence of Latino women showing up to vote because of the Dobbs decision, basically getting rid of Roe, um, especially if they were in 
purple or red states that they're concerned um, about that. So, you know, I think so. I think it has an effect depending on what what state you're in. But you know, as we go, as more time passes, it's going to have less and less of an effect. I think unless the state is you know passing some kind of draconian anti-abortion legislation, which obviously is happening. Absolutely. And so, um, you know, as you look back um, on your time in Santa Barbara, I think it's um, I think it's interesting that you've become involved in the nonprofit community as it's such a, um, a standard of who we are as Santa Barbarans. And so is that was that always your come from to get involved in community or is the Santa Barbara community kind of what helped you get more and more involved in, in nonprofit work and making our world a better place? That's a really good question. Um, I didn't plan to do that. I didn't I came here when my kids were still on the younger side. So that was sort of my uh, my the main emphasis of my of my time and my efforts. But um I sort of discovered these organizations one by one, and they're very different from the organizations that I was involved in with in New York City or in Connecticut that were just, there were more, and I mean, this is going to sound horrible, but like in, in the East, in the Northeast, they were more kind of junior league-y, you know, it was very... Um, the junior league does a lot of good work in Santa Barbara <laughs> too, as a former member and past president, I have to stand up for us, we <laughs> safe house, you should look it up, but... More society-based. That's right. But I bet that the Junior League here is very different from the Junior League in Fairfield <laughs> County, Connecticut. Like, I'm just guessing that it's different. So um, I just really liked that. I mean, the, the emphasis was really about the work, you know, the what what people were doing and, and what goes on. And people really care about the community and they just want to make it better. And it wasn't, you know, there wasn't like a lot of social climbing and, you know, all that stuff. So I just was really impressed with these or some of these organizations that really... Um, care about the community. I got into that. I became a master gardener here and took some horticulture classes at SBCC. So um, that was another that was another great community that I discovered here. Let me also help to you to answer that question. That is, you come from a, a long line uh, of liberal thinkers. Your dad was one of the post-beat poets in San Francisco. So it's not, you know, you talk about, we started the conversation with Stanford and engineering and stock trading, but you come from a interesting family. Your mother was a, was a district attorney. So uh, you've had a lot of uh, people behind you with, you know, a good sense of fair play and justice. Yeah, it was, no, it was a very, it was a really unusual upbringing. Um, yeah. So I think it, it sort of kept me from fitting into a box, I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of, you know, interesting effects from all of that. And my mom being a DA was was also super interesting. Well, thank you, Kathleen. Thank you for being here. Uh, and thanks for all you do. Uh, certainly what you do is more important to society than trading bonds. I found that out also when I came here. Uh, thank you for coming. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Money Talk. And we'll see you all next week. 